All right. Hey, friends, welcome back to Mike's podcast. I am so glad to have you joining us today and um, really grateful for the guests that we get to have on today. And um, my friend and I, we both have something in common, and that's that we both have held and he's currently holding the same position at the same church. And so I was lead pastor at a church in Long Beach called Parkcrest Christian Church. And Jared is now the lead pastor at Parkcrest Christian Church. And so welcome, Jared. Glad to have you here. So glad to be here, man. Thanks. Great to hang out today. So I know um, some of the people listening to this will know who you are because mm-hmm. um, they know me through Parkcrest, but then there's a whole bunch of people who don't know who you are. So could you just give us a little bit of your background, give us some some of your context? Yeah, cool. Hey, like like you said, my name is Jared. I actually have lived in five different states now, California, but was born in Connecticut, raised in the great state of North Carolina. If you guys ever been there, uh, you know it's great. If you haven't, you need to go check it out uh, sometime. <laughs> uh, I um, have now been in pastoral ministry for like 15 years, 16 years. I am married to a woman I don't deserve. Uh, she's amazing. Her That's a true Donna. story. <laughs> Uh, and she, uh, we've been married for 12 years this year. We have four amazing children, uh, McKenna, Declan and Zoe and Naomi, all 10 and under. So our, our house is pretty fun. Uh, yeah, like I said, lived in a few States, North Carolina was in Oklahoma as well as Illinois and now on the West coast. And so it is, I will say this is the best weather uh, that I've ever experienced ever in life. And uh, yeah. hopefully it can stay like that for a while. It's <laughs> good. Oh, well, I'm so glad to have you living out here on the West Coast and really grateful for you to be um, leading a church that I care so much about and have cared about for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day, and it's a part of why even like you and I are having this conversation today, is Parkrest is a little bit of an older church. It was started mm-hmm. in the 1950s, and uh, you're the eighth pastor of Parkrest since then, and seven of those pastors have been white. Mm-hmm. white men, and you are the first black pastor of that church. And I'm kind of curious, and I've never asked you this before. I'm curious, mm-hmm. what does it feel like to step into that leadership role as the first black pastor of a church that has always been led by white men? You know, it um, it's actually just another stop in the journey. Uh, it, it's something I'm always aware of, uh, because a lot of the times in the spaces that I've been, I've been the first black or the second, mm-hmm. you know. Going back to even college, uh, I was elected vice president of my college and I was the fourth black vice president in the school's history. Uh, wow. So it's just you know, just different phases. And um, uh, and I understand, like, it just dawned on me, right? Like, you said in 1950, like, there's no way in the world I could have been pastoring this church in 1950. Right. <laughs> um, and so I think for me, you know, it, it is a perspective. Uh, but, you know, in the world that we're shaped in, like being, being an African-American, I have to learn to live in a white world. Uh, and so I think for me, it's not uh, it's not anything that uh, is stifling or that I'm pausing about, but it's just another step in the journey, like from doing it from uh, vice president, being one of the first you know, African-Americans uh, to serve uh, at, at my congressman's office uh, when I was in a first job out of college, uh, being on a couple of different staffs where I was the first or second black person. It's just that's kind of the the lot that God has given to me in my life. And so this is just another step of the journey. Obviously, there's a different weight 
coming with a lead pastor than I am just an associate or teaching. Um, sure. But man, it's a it's an it's an honor, and because you know you know frankly, like I said, you know living in different states, living in different places, I have had the opportunity to bounce between different worlds, uh, and so now to be able to lead in a space where we can hopefully create a world that I want my kids to live in, you know, in a church like that. Um, then this is an honor. It's a privilege. Uh, excited comes with its challenges too, you know, but it's where yeah. we're here, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of curious, what would I, cause uh, as you're saying, like you've been the first in a lot of situations, I was trying to think of like, what would, where would that be mm. true for me? And, uh, um, I'm sure that, that, that there's probably some experiences I've had. I'm, I'm struggling to come up with one off the top of my head. What, what is something about being the first in a situation like that um, in whatever kind of situation, whether leading the church or whatever, being the first or one of the first, what is something about that that I might not be aware of? Like one. So here's one of the, here's one of the hard things. I think being the first is that sometimes every, every other single person who has an opportunity will be based upon my success or failure. Oh my gosh. Uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional, like, like literally, I remember being in one space where uh, we were talking about how there, there weren't a lot of people co- in color in leadership. And one of the the pushback, and I put that in air quotes, was that, well, if, if, if one doesn't do well, it's going to mess it up for the rest. And I'm like, that's not true with anybody else. Like, so help me understand. I think that's just something that you like, there is an implicit bias, I think, that comes with that or that we are judged on a harsher and a larger scale, meaning that if, if Jared can't do it, does that prohibit another person of color from being a pastor here uh, later? And so I think that's a weight you know, that I've kind of learned to carry. It's, it's heavy and it's not fair, but it's kind of what it is. Uh, so I think, I think that's probably just, if you haven't been the first or the only, that's just something that like, yeah, all like, all eyes are on me, you know, whether it's successful or failure and who's determining what sex success or failure is too, as well. It's tough. But I think just, just knowing that and carrying that weight, if you, if you haven't done that. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me a little bit of, um, while I was at Parkcrest, we, um, shifted to become egalitarian and have women in all roles Mm -hmm. and leadership in the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember similar kinds of conversations with some of our first women elders, um, our first woman teaching pastor and, uh, and not realizing like the, the sort of weight, Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of comes with that. Yeah. Um, where I felt like, look, I'm, helping to be a part of a community that's creating new spaces, which mm-hmm. on one hand I think is good and right, yes. mm-hmm. but I didn't have any kind of grasp as to the weight of what that meant for the first people stepping into those spaces. Well, there's a lot of even, even theory behind like HR and hiring and stuff like the, the, the difficulty okay. is if you bring someone on, like whether they're a person of color, minority, a woman, and they're the first, oftentimes if they're the first and the only one in there, they fizzle out because the systems aren't set up for them to succeed. Um, so HR, what sometimes they're doing is they're doing something called cluster hiring, where they'll hire three or four who can journey together in this. Yeah. So there's somebody who can lean on. So, so like if I have a thought in my head and, and somebody like, oh, I'm not going crazy you're also thinking the same thing oh you saw that too as well and when somebody's all on their own it, it's hard um and, and and i think the 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 success rate could be a lot lower um, when you start talking about doing it long term in organizations and whatnot so that's really good that's really fascinating we could probably talk a long time about that but that's, good. Not we, <laughs> that's not what we got together to talk no, about you no, and i no. you and i connected last week as um 
as we were recognizing just the weight of what was happening across mm-hmm. America, as we were seeing, um, as we were seeing the profile being raised of um, of the way that Black people are being treated, as we saw um, murders being perpetuated that were ridiculous and unjust and horrific. And even in the last week since you and I talked that there's been a super heightened sense of all of this now with with protests and with riots and looting and with um, um, even like super people who I would consider um, not normally engaged in caring about this stuff, seemingly Mm. at least on social media, caring about this stuff. So when you and I first talked last week, we were talking about seeing Ahmaud Arbery as a sort of like. And maybe you could say like his murder as the thing that seemed to like catalyze a lot mm-hmm. of people caring who didn't care before. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious one, if like, even with another week of reflection, if you'd still see that as the case. And if so, like, why do you think things began to change with what happened with Ahmad Arbery? And that, that's a fascinating question. Uh, and I think one that we can delve into now. I, I can say this. I'm not speaking for all black people. I'm going to say that. Sure. <laughs> Um, but just from my observation, I think there, there, I have this theory that when, when pain touches us, uh, then we can actually identify with it easier than if it touches somebody who's far away or that we can't identify with. Like okay. when we look at Ahmaud Arbery, one thing, he was doing something that a lot of people do normally and don't think twice about. He was out for a job. Like how many of your listeners or whatnot, you know, are will probably either jog or walk or something, and they don't have to worry about anything happening to them. So I think that was the first fact of that. He he was it, it wasn't like he was involved in stealing or you know how the normal narrative goes. Like it's yeah. Well, let's wait till all the facts come out. There was no extra facts that needed to happen in there because this was caught on video, and so you're seeing this like, well, he's doing something I normally do. The second thing I think is this is he he fit the profile of a comfortable person of color. Now, what do I mean mm. by that? Is yeah. that we all have people that we like and that we don't like and that we think are shady by the way they look. Uh, it, it's an implicit bias that we all have. Uh, and it's being aware of it, I think, which is more important. Uh, but, but being able to kind of speak against that. Like when I when I saw Ahmad Arbery's like high school graduation photo, like it looked like mine. Um, mm. And I was like, OK, you know, so he looked saved. He was a handsome guy. Um, he was an athlete as well. So like we can identify with people of color who are athletes as well, too. Uh, so I think yeah. all those put in the thing is like he's doing something that I, that, that I would have done normally. Um, uh, he looks like a person that I would hang out with and like uh, he's an athlete. I like athletes. They're cool. So there's there's this internal thing that like that shouldn't have happened to him. Like uh, he, he wasn't like getting caught in a drug bus or anything to that extent. So I think people could identify with this is not right. And the video was atrocious. Like, I mean, t- so I think with the video evidence on top of that, that was the thing that tipped it over in, in the scale of like, this is not right. And I saw a lot of friends like name, name words like racism who I've seen who never would do that in the past. And, and to say that this is an injustice, uh, usually some of the folks who I saw say that now would say, hey, let's wait for all the facts to come out. Um, but for some reason, I think because they could identify, they may have had a friend who looked like Ahmaud Arbery, who they could identify with. And what if this happened to their friend? What if this happened to somebody they know? So I really think when pain touches us, Man, th- we respond differently than it's with pain just is over there farther away. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that all makes a lot of sense to me. 
I even noticed how, and you and I had talked about this, that um, Andy Stanley, who's a prominent mm-hmm. white pastor, mm-hmm. um, and it's especially well known amongst like white pastors, like yep. he's somebody that a lot of a lot of us look to as somebody to provide leadership and voice. And he spoke out about it. Yeah. And it felt like when he spoke out about it, that that opened up the ability for others to feel the freedom to speak out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd agree. Yeah. What, 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 I mean, we don't know we're, or we're not talking to Andy right now. So what <laughs> without like, we're obviously not talking to him, but w- what would you sort of say like maybe is behind some of that even? So I think when, when your influencers say something, it gives you freedom to say something uh, in a way that is different than if you are the one who take it. Cause frankly, there could have been a lot of pastors who were afraid to say something because how is my congregation going to respond? How is, mm-hmm. you know, are they going to like what I say? But if Andy Stanley takes the bullet, like they can always point back and say, well, look, Aunt, like Andy said it uh, with the most recent with George Floyd, the Southern Baptists like said something about it, too. So I think there are these when, when your influencers or your folks who are who have the authority, who have the power are able to lead the way. It does make it a little bit easier for everyone to talk about it. Uh, now, is that right? No, <laughs> but it sure. is the world that we live in and to recognize that. So with his voice, it's like, OK. He's saying something. All right. I, or it might even bring people who would never have said something. If he says something to say, hmm, let me think about this. May, maybe there's something I'm missing. It just opens the door for more conversation uh, to move this down the field a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've really wrestled with over the last several years that this like kind of hits on is I've had a hard time owning space that I have influence in at mm-hmm. like, I'm like, well, I'm just Mike and I'm just Mike doing my thing. Mm-hmm. And not always recognizing like, no, there's actually a weight that comes mm-hmm. with when I do my thing. Yep. Um, and we all, like every one of us has that at some level, whether even mm-hmm. if it's like just in our family unit mm-hmm. or if it's in like, we have a larger online following or if we have a congregation or we have whatever, we've got some group of people who like trust us in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And there is this like responsibility with owning that, it seems. Hmm. There is. And I think, you know, the those to whom much is given, much is required. You know, those folks who have that level of influence, I think we, one, you have to be careful with what you say because people do will follow what you say. But right. then if they're like, and that's why I love, like I said, I've, I've met Andy one time. <laughs> it was randomly uh, at a conference. Really nice guy. We connected. I think we both lived in North Carolina or something to that extent. But but when he says it, it it moves pastors to think about it differently. Uh, if I said it, it would be easier to ah, Jared's just well. Of course, that matters to Jared, or you know, or whatnot. But when he says it, there's a different level of influence that uh, that I just recognize that comes. It's not that he knows more about the subject matter or knows about the right. details or even or even how to do the work. But the fact of simply saying it, it opens the door for folks who do know how to do this work uh, to move it forward in a way because now now people are open to it. Hmm. Um. So. For you, as these things begin coming out, as um, we heard about Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, uh, Christian Cooper, as as all of that was sort of coming out, like what what happened in you as these things were happening? What happened in you as you would wake up and read the news or see the tweets or whatever? What was going on in you? Man, I wish I had a better answer, but really not much because this is just normal. <laughs> 
Uh, like I, I wish I could say, man, I was awoken in a rage, but no, like it's <laughs> it's Tuesday. Like, um, you know, you know, it, it got more national, you know, in terms of what, like when Trayvon Martin back in 2012. Like, mm-hmm. so for for me, it's like this is just part of the narrative. It's part of something I'm very aware of. Uh, when you talk about relationships between police and people of color. And I'm saying this, like, and my father-in-law is a 20-year veteran of the NYPD. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I understand, like, the, the work. my wife used to work for a police department as well, too. And I know that there are some challenges and complications when you look at the data and statistics of policing and all that kind of good stuff. Um, but so to me, none of it's surprising. Like, it's, I remember, like, when I was growing up, and this, this is a personal story, and, like, keep this on. Uh, I remember whenever I would have any kind of disagreement or altercation with a person in the majority culture, the first thing that the person would cut towards is, oh, you're an N-word. Like, literally. And these are friends. Like, in eighth grade, I remember, like, and eighth graders are going to argue all the time. Like, I got in a small argument with a guy, and he called me the N-word. I'm like, but we're friends. We ate lunch together. Um, So, like, this kind of, like, hostility just becomes a a normal tension that you experience, whether it's overtly, you know, where you have the individual, you have a whole systematic thing that I don't know if we'll get into today, but you have the individual part, but then there's this systemic thing that's going behind and it's none of it. Like, I really wish I could say I was surprised, Uh, but it's like, it's just what it is. And what, what I'm thankful for is that these, you know, um, these situations have, have had more people ask questions. Like, Maybe, maybe there is something behind what we're seeing. And will everybody? No, not everybody won't. And I'm okay with that. Um, but I think there are individuals who are going to start asking questions. I can't tell you the number of conversations that I've had, you know, since then from people who I normally wouldn't have, uh, like yeah. near and far. And it's been beautiful and exhausting and beautiful at the same time. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what does it feel like to you? Uh, uh, several of my friends who are people of color have expressed to me that they're like, I'm, I'm glad you guys all finally like woke up to this. Um, but, and I've been like dealing with it for a long time and Mm -hmm. now everybody over the last two weeks wants to talk to me about it and I'm really tired of talking about it. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's true. Like, um, it's, it's hard because, um, and, and, and it's, it's people who mean very well, but when you have 20 or 30 or 40 people ask you the same question, it's like, ah, like, how do you, like, how do you navigate that? Well, so I think, uh, you, you have to figure out what lane you're going to do and what's appropriate. So for me, like I, I do look at it differently. Some of my friends, like some of my friends are like, man, I'm exhausted. I can't do it. Hey, here's a book list. Read that. And then we can have mm-hmm. a conversation. And I think it's appropriate. Like, I do think it's appropriate. I think for my seat, like, as a pastor, as a shepherd, where Jesus calls us to come towards, like, like he will leave the 99 and go to the one. Like, I, I am, how do I lead a congregation through things like this uh, as a part of our discipleship, you know, keeping this thing rooted in scripture and what that means. So I I will, like, probably put more energy in, in some of my friends. Also, I'm coming in as a pastor. I have my, my other good friends who are coming in as prophets, and they're like, tear the system yeah. down. And, and, like, you need those prophets. Like, you, like pastors need prophets. We need te- we need all of those things to come together to really to do this well. Um, but 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 it is exhausting, I know, to some of my friends because it's like, hey, you got to do something before you come. Here's a book. Here's a movie to watch. Here's something. And then we can have a conversation because I think oftentimes the way it comes across and it's not intentional is, hey, can you teach me about this? And it's like, yes, I can't like I don't, I don't have the energy to teach you about everything. Um, but let's have a let's have a starting point. So. 
Yeah. So I'm curious, even um, one of the conversations that I've had a few times over the last week or so is um, uh, we've read a lot of things as people are reaching out to their their friends who are people of color and are checking in. And what so mm-hmm. we're hearing on one hand, like, make sure you're checking in with your friends who are people of color, like make mm-hmm. sure that like you're expressing that you care about them. And then we're also hearing like, don't say I'm sorry. And you're like, crap, I said I'm sorry to them. And then we're hearing like, don't ask how they're feeling. They're tired of having to answer how I'm feeling. Like, crap, I sent Jared a message yesterday and said like, how are you feeling today? And um, and it and it feels really difficult to figure out like, um, and I think one of the things that I hear from some of my white friends is they feel scared to say the mm-hmm. wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to do the wrong thing. And so they end up being silent and not mm-hmm. doing anything or saying anything and, um, and not knowing, like, I, I don't, I don't know what the question is as much as like, can, can you speak into that a little bit? Asking you as the black man to provide another answer to me. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I, I think the first thing is like, really check the relationship you have with that person. Like yeah. if it's a person you haven't reached out to in a year and a half, like, don't oh just just thought about you like that's weird like, <laughs> like but it, but if you actually have a relationship and you're actually doing life with this with this person like there are buckets of grace available for that um, that I think we all carry uh, and because yeah I, I have gotten the text where there are folks I haven't talked to in a long time I'm like oh okay I, I can't I don't have the energy but there's some yeah. like folks who I like we talk weekly anyway and they're like. I just wanted to check in on you. But to me, that's just the normal part of the conversation. Uh, like even a, I had a, a good friend, you know, um, he texted me this morning. He was like, man, how is, how is pastor Jared? How is father Jared? How is Jared Jared? And, but mm. we talk regularly. So yeah. it doesn't seem anything out of the ordinary. So I think the, the, the push on that would be, what are the circle of relationships that you have? Do you have people of color who are in your life normally that you can check in on that, you know, and love, and it's not weird because mm-hmm. Somebody that I really love and know, yes, they're going to mess up with the way they ask. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Like, we talk all the time anyway. Um, and so I think it's it's now if you don't have those, then I think that makes the work a little bit harder. Um, so you're not texting your friend from high school from 25 years ago and say, hey, just wanted to check <laughs> in on you. <laughs> I don't know any black people, but I remember you. That's it. That's it. And so, you know, for sure. It, the circle relationships that we have, if, if they, if they were mono ethnic before, they're probably still mono ethnic now. And so you mm-hmm. have to reach out a little more intentionally and it might be weird in the beginning. Um, but if you feel the need to do it, then I would encourage to do it and make it weird. And yes, it'll, you'll mess up. Yes. You'll say the wrong thing. Yes. You may even offend somebody, but don't let that stop you from moving towards someone. That's really good. Um, well, so you talked about the difference between being a pastor and being a prophet. I heard somebody mm-hmm. once describe it this way. They said, we need people to like shake the trees and mm-hmm. get all the apples off the trees. And that's kind of the prophet. They come in and they just mess everything up and mm-hmm. and rile everybody up. And then they leave the apples on the ground and they take off and go do mm-hmm. something else. And then the pastors are the people or the fruit. And the pastors are the people who take the fruit and like make the jam. Yeah. Who have to like that's a good do analogy. the work with the stuff that's there. Mm-hmm. Um so one of the works of the pastor is to create a context to bring about the formation of people, to see mm. people discipled into more and more Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how do people need to be formed? What does formation look like in this space? How does this inform even how we think about formation? That's so good. That's such a good question. You know, um, one, I think we have to recognize that we are being formed regardless of whether we know it or not. There mm, are yeah. habits, there are communities or things that we're reading. There are news outlets we listen to. Everything that we're doing is forming us, whether we like it or not. So, you know, I just preached uh, last week a sermon on Peter uh, where he in Acts chapter 10, where he's at first refusing the Gentiles like uh, that's, that's unclean. Like, you know, God, well, I've never done that before. And so, you know, you had this idea to where for some reason he was formed in a way that he uh, believed the Gentiles were unworthy, that they were unclean, that he shouldn't go near them uh, until he gets into proximity with them and sees the Holy Spirit moving among them. And then he gets to this point where he's like, oh, now I see God is no respecter of person. And the, the part where I'm challenging that is like, I'm like, yo, you walk with Jesus for like three years and you, you saw him going <laughs> to people that... <laughs> <laughs> that people called unclean. They actually called Jesus a drunk and all that because he was, and, and you still didn't see that for real, Peter, but that's, but that's the power of formation. Like, I don't even think we see our own blindness in the moments because it's just like, uh, I don't know who made this quote up, but it's like, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't the fish because the fish lives in it. Like these mm -hmm. environments that are shaped by the neighborhoods that we live in, the friends that we have, the news outlets that we choose to, that is discipling us. Uh, and to look at things a certain way. And so uh, so when people see something like a a Black Lives Matter, there are two different responses that are based on the, the formation. And that's actually like a part of the discipleship of our own hearts that, that's been happening, you know, for, for, for decades. And uh, just stop me. I'm going to go a little bit into it, but stop me if it goes yeah, too far. No, 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 like, no. Go, go, go. <laughs> but like when you, when you think of discipleship, like a lot of it is it's, it's, it's not just I get this information and I think about it and now I live better. Like right. discipleship is you get this content and information, yes, but it's also done relationally because we don't think rationally all the time. We do act on what are we feeling? What are we doing? And so if there's something that challenges us, like like Peter was challenged with a thought, hey, maybe the gen maybe I can eat this food because it's clean. But it wasn't until he became in proximity with others that he actually made the turn to say yes. But then the crazy thing is he actually turned back later when you read Galatians. <laughs> yeah, so, which is a fascinating deal, right? Yes, it's the power that of it, formation. It's like his eyes are opened to this mm -hmm. reality. Yes. And then something happens. Mm -hmm. Maybe the community that he is around yes. a lot that mm -hmm. ends up shifting him in a way where the realization that he had, he's now being called out by Paul that like, why, why yep. aren't you eating at this table any yep. longer? It, what, what is this? I think it's two fourteen Galatians, but it's like, you know, until those from James came and the other yeah. circumcised. So it's that, that community is a strong part of our discipleship. And so no matter how many facts or figures someone gives you, if there is no relationship that you have in your life, that's actually challenging you, you're not, we're not going to change or move forward. And so like how deep that goes is, and, and this goes into, all right, we're here a little bit now. <laughs> this goes yeah. in a little bit of some systemic stuff. Like, yeah, like yeah. When, when we look at our neighborhoods, um, like, so look at neighborhoods or whatnot. For, for the most part, neighborhoods are homogenous in culture. And that goes back to everything from redlining to not allowing people, I, even here in Long Beach where we are right Wait, now. Wait, talk about redlining for a minute. Oh, What's yeah. So redlining, cool. so, so redlining uh, is basically if you were going to purchase a home, um, banks would not issue loans to certain neighborhoods. And that's where the neighborhoods were people of color. And so therefore, people of color could not. And this goes back to the 50s, 40s, 50s, yeah. even before 
that we could not own homes. Therefore, that inhibited our ability to get equity in our homes, to gain wealth, um, to be able to pass assets down from generation to generation. Like I've said this before, but like I was born in 1982 and I was the first. My brother's born in 1980. We were the first people who were born with all of our rights. Like that oh is like and th- so we're not even talking about slavery right now. Like right. we're talking about I'm 38. My brother turns that blows my mind. <laughs> and so like an- another like and so when you think about redlining, it, it prohibits people from being able to get into certain neighborhoods. And we all know that neighborhoods based on where you live at allows the, the kind of school that you go to. And if right. and if the neighborhoods are then uh, if the school is resourced by the property taxes that are in that area, then what happens is, oh, why is that school a good school and a bad school, even though they're only two or three miles apart? It's because the equity, the inequity that has happened that allowed these neighborhoods to, to go the way they are. Uh, and so like that is a part of formation because when we talk about, hey, let's just hang out with people in our neighborhood. Well, who's really in your neighborhood? Uh, right. Let's hang out with people that we know. And even even this is some of my challenges with with churches. Like, hey, we're going to be a church in the neighborhood. What does our neighborhood actually look like uh, or whatnot? So I think that like all those are, are challenges hmm. that you think through. And it's all a part of the discipleship process um, because we can hear this great sermon on a weekend or this great thought or read this great author, you know, but if we go back to a homogenous culture, we end up being like Peter and the relationships are going to shape us more than what God's invitation is shaping us to be. That's really good. I, um, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I had this realization at, uh, several years ago where, um, especially when, when I started engaging a lot more with, with women leaders in the church mm. that I began to realize that all of the stuff that I was reading theologically mm-hmm. was all written by men. And so mm-hmm. all of my, like, um, and even, even like being in men's groups and things like that, mm-hmm. that I was like, I was with people who are most like me in relationship mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. deep, intimate relationship. And then mm-hmm. the things that were sort of feeding the way and had always fed the way that I thought mm-hmm. about faith and the church and all that mm-hmm. were all written by men. And so I started realizing like, oh, I need to be re- reading some women. Mm-hmm. And there were some like great women scholars that I started mm-hmm. discovering some great women authors I started discovering. Then I began to realize like uh, my next sort of shift was this realization that, oh, I have a sort of church tribe that I have Mm. been reading out of. And I have not at all been shaped by like, say the Eastern church. I've been Mm. very shaped by the Western church, but the Eastern church has a really rich tradition. (laughs) What's that? Bugelkoff. He's a Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Theologian. Yes. There's <laughs> really so much, like there's so much great in Eastern Orthodoxy. Yep. Um, and there's so much great being written by people outside of, uh, Protestant Western evangelicalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so began like reading and delving into all of them, um, realizing like I could expand out of that. And then the, the last, I don't know why this was the last one, but it was the last one was realizing like, Oh, I'm not reading many and engaging in this sort of work with uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. And I need to be reading more Howard Thurman and Willie mm-hmm. Jennings mm-hmm. and James. Cone. I had, I had Willie Jennings. He was one of my professors. He's shut amazing. up. He's, uh, uh, I have his commentary on acts coming to the house right now. <laughs> what you're saying is so powerful. Cause he, here's what it is. Like it's coming to the realization that we are not the owners of God's story. Huh? Okay. We unpack that a little bit. 
So I think we, we come with our own set of beliefs and biases, good and bad, that when we read a scripture, we look at it through our lenses. So I, this played out real time for me when I was working at a, a different church in North Carolina. Is we were going through the entire Bible uh, and, in a year. And one of the things that came up is when we got to the Exodus, you know, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all that, Joshua, like the war, um, like the pastor stood up and said, he's like, man, like, you know, um, He's like, I know we're going to get through some of these harder texts, like you know, the war. We're going to see a lot of killing and blood. And, and that might be hard for us to justify because we know that God is a God of love. And like in that moment, I don't, I was like, huh. And then so I, was, I stood up and said something like, you know, in a way I was like, well, I was like, let me just bring it up. Like I grew up in the African-American church. All you guys knew that we love the story of the Exodus. Yeah, <laughs> We love the story of Joshua. And here's why, because when you are in a people group that is in the margins, you want a God that is going to write that. <laughs> like the only people who want Jericho walls to stay up are the folks who live inside of Jericho. Um, but Israel, Israel wanted a God who will move in their behalf. So I was like, those stories were stories of comfort that probably played black from when there was, you know, in the times of slavery and the stories were passed forward. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of mimicking when you look at American slavery and then the children of Israel in terms okay. of just like this crying out and this calling. And that's like, that was the view of the scripture. So God wasn't just a God of love. Yes, God was a God of love and God was also a God of justice uh, who will move on behalf of God's people. And so I think that like, is, but I was raised in that. And so it, it makes sense for me to look at it that way. If, if I wasn't raised in a context or were in proximity with individuals who were thinking that way, then I could see how, okay, that, that, that text makes me uncomfortable because now it's pressing against my formation. Uh, and then once it presses against you, who do you go to? Do you go to somebody who might be able to press you a little bit more or do you go to the crowd of James and then you retreat back to your safety? Like it's, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you that you messed with me when you told me that when early on when we were having conversations mm -hmm. and I asked you about how you handled the violent Old Testament text, because mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. I had done years of work to mm -hmm. like deal with it because um, mm -hmm. it had been messing with me for a long time mm -hmm. and I had come to some places that I felt good with. And then you said that and I was like, I don't think I, what I, I, what I was about to say something that would put it put us in the explicit category on yeah. itunes but i just do that yeah like <laughs> darn it jared like why you gotta mess with me with that um it's a part of the story i think that that's the beauty i think of of perspectives because uh, we each come with our own lens we do and i think owning that is the first thing um uh, but then recognizing where is where can it where can it be filtered in a way that i can see a bigger picture of who god is yeah. And I think one of the things I think that I've been discovering is that I only can be aware of what my lens is when I'm coming into contact with people yes. who have a different lens. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So if I am around people who are most like me, if I'm mm -hmm. in the echo chamber on the internet, if I'm watching news that just confirms, sort of mm -hmm. like makes me feel good and riles me mm -hmm. up and whatever then I have no awareness of what lens I actually have. I think that mm -hmm. I do, but I, but I, but I actually don't no. until I'm being confronted until no. I'm like, what do you do with the old, these old Testament violent texts as this way to like, get you to tell me about your hermeneutics. And you're like, here's what I do with it. And I'm like, ah, dang. <laughs> What you said, and it all goes back to the relationships that we have, because it's it's 
you know, and you, you just mentioned it, echo chambers and confirmation bias. Like yeah. we will look for things where, that we can agree with naturally. I do it. You do it. Every person listening, you do it whether you know it or not. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's on either side of the aisle. So this is not a conservative thing or a liberal thing. It's a thing thing. It's a people thing. Um, like we, we look to confirm what we believe. And are there voices in our life that we invite that could potentially press against that in a healthy way? Like, yeah. have you considered this perspective? And it's like, oh, I never thought of that. It doesn't mean you have to change your mind or change anything, but I think you, the invitation to see something in a bigger way that it's like, oh, now I see God is no respecter of person. Like, hmm. like, so, but, but keep in mind, even so, the other problem, I'm getting back to the text and I'm getting mad. <laughs> My other problem <laughs> with that, now I see God is no respecter of person, is because even when you look at the Exodus, there was a mixed multitude that left Egypt. It just wasn't all of Israel, it was also anybody else who went. So it's like, God's been doing that since uh, the beginning. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You should have studied that when you memorized Torah as a young man. Like, <laughs> you should have. So it, it's, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I can get crunked about stuff like that. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Um, I'm really grateful for you bringing all that stuff up. So, um, so Jared, the the reality is, like, um, for white people like me, who are like, hey, we've um, we're beginning to recognize that there's something going on here. We're beginning to recognize not only is there something going on in our country, but we're even beginning to recognize, like this is a necessary part of my formation is entering mm. into these sorts of spaces. And I want to become who God designed and created me to become. I want to move more and more towards Christ likeness. Um, and so we need to do some of our own work mm -hmm. to, to begin moving in that direction. Do you have, um, maybe we could talk about a couple of, of ways, like how does this become practical? What does this start to look yeah. like? What are just some like, baby steps 101 sort of level things yeah. that we could be doing. Yeah. Well, the first thing is like awareness. And so if you are in a space where it's awareness, it's, it's what do I then now begin to study? So like there are a couple of great resources out there. Uh, the book Divided by Faith is a good place so to start, good. Uh, specifically when you talk about the church uh, in yes. terms of being the, the most divided time, 11 o'clock, you know, it, it just gives a good history and a good perspective. So like if you're a primer, that's a really good one. Uh, yeah. Just Mercy is another great book. And also in the month of June, it's free. So if you have Amazon, you can actually rent it for free digitally. I saw that, and yes. which is wonderful in so many levels. I think Just Mercy, like I just was weeping in the theater mm -hmm. at it and we brought our kids to it. And so our mm -hmm. kids at the time, they're 14 and 12, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, I was so glad to have them in there to be um uh, for them to get an exposure to the reality of what's going on in the justice system mm -hmm. and um, and things that they would not experience if mm -hmm. they weren't being intentionally exposed to that mm -hmm. as the experience. Mm -hmm. and, and the beauty about Just Mercy, too, is like this was 1986, 87. Like we're not talking about. 1743 <laughs> right like this is recent uh and the supreme court case uh, at the end of it without you know spoiler 2015 so this is like right i, I love the just mercy aspect because it is current most if you are able to read you know more than likely you were alive if you're listening but you're probably alive at that time um and so i think there is it's a good powerful it's a great movie and it's an easy read um so i think just to kind of like all right that's a good 
first step. Like, I think another step, like people, do you actually have people of color in your life that you are not afraid to ask the question towards? Hmm. Um, like that's, that's, and, and if you don't like, don't feel bad. Like, so this isn't a beat over the head and like, I don't have any black friends. Right. Like it's, it's, it, it, it's okay. It's okay to feel weird at this time. Cause like I, I keep going back to Peter when he's like, now I see like his whole world fell apart. Like, so now some people are starting to see, oh man, maybe, maybe I was wrong. Like maybe I didn't see it. Like it's, you're going to go through guilt, shame, anger, denial, like the stages of grief you'll probably go through, <laughs> Yeah, um, which is probably if you feel heavy, it's probably some of that that you're going through right now. Um, but if you have a person of color that you can trust, um, after you've watched, after you've done some reading, like one of those two books, um, and then discuss that content. Um, you know, sometimes maybe it's not discussing how you feel, um, uh, because uh, even me as that question is hard for me to answer. It's, a, it, you know, mm-hmm. even for the folks that are there, cause like, like, I don't know what the person's looking for, <laughs> for me to answer sometimes. Right. Uh, like, you know, yeah, I feel, you know, because all this stuff isn't new to me, you know, I'm not as broken as some people who are just finding it out. Yeah. So. See if you have that, but yeah, but start with the book, start with the movie. Oh, 13th, another Netflix one, really yeah. good movie. Uh, documentary. Start talking about the documentary uh, about the prison industrial complex. That's a really good one as well, too, to start out with. Yeah, that one was really, um, I felt like eye opening for Allison and I when we first mm-hmm. watched it and opened up, um, uh, opened up like er- other areas that I needed to like push mm-hmm. into more to understand more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was good. Um, uh, if I could throw one out for my for my white friends as well, uh, Latasha Morrison runs an organization called Be the Bridge, Be the Bridge. Mm-hmm. and um, I got turned on to it because a friend of mine's on the board, and they have a program uh, mm-hmm. called BTB One Hundred One, mm-hmm. and it's essentially a introductory program for before even like you start like trying to figure out like an understanding systemic racism and understanding all of that that it's like. Hey, there are some basic things, some internal work that um, white folks that we need to do that um, that we don't fully understand that will hinder us from being able to engage in work of racial reconciliation. Hmm. And um, and so BTB 101 is is sort of like their introductory course to like help you sort of like grapple with some of that stuff. So um, so I would recommend I would recommend checking that out as well. That's good. No, it's it's. You know, I would say that the soft skill is give yourself the grace to mess up. It's good because nobody's going to do this right. <laughs> there, yeah. there is not a, hey, if you do these five things, then you'll be the perfect reconciler. Like, <laughs> it's just not it's not there. So give yourself the grace to mess up in a conversation. You will probably say the wrong thing. And that's OK. Uh, and, and the beauty is like when there's a good relationship, then there's, there's a buckets of grace, um, that I think we all carry, but carry that bucket for yourself as well, too. Uh, that's I think good. that'll, that'll be helpful. Um, and it's hard work. So I, I, I wish I could say like, even look at it from a theological level for us to be reconciled to God, it took a bloody cross and that was hard, um, for us to be reconciled to one another it's going to be hard and it's yeah. going to be hurt. There's going to be hard conversations. Um, there'll be things, you know, you'll be offended. Um, you'll offend others. Uh, but, but don't stop the work, especially if these past few moments 
you know, spoke something inside of your heart that you like, don't stop the work because it gets hard. Um, keep going. Yeah, no, that's good. I think it's really important for us to remember, like, we're like, we're wanting to do something today because yeah. all of this stuff is super heightened. And um, what it seems that one of the things that's happening today is that we are getting exposed. We are having our eyes opened and we're not going to fix, we're not going to fix it next week. Mm -hmm. um, no, it, no, you're not like, I'll just give you a, a, uh, I wrote this down. So I want to make sure that I say this right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it, it was, it was when it first started happening, a friend of mine just checked in with me and like, you know, how, how are you, uh, how are you doing? And, um, and, uh, okay. Where I write it, you might, uh, uh, oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Um, I said, exhausted. Um, and this is the reality. I said, realizing I will not live long enough to see the fruit of racial reconciliation and justice. Oh my gosh. Disappointed. My kids probably won't see it. Hopeful that my grandkids may smell it. And believing my great my great grandkids will taste it, um, because that like this will is you a say that again. <laughs> um, I said um, so. There, so how are you? Just checking on you. I said exhausted, realizing I will not live long enough to see the fruit of racial reconciliation and justice from a large scale. Disappointed, my kids probably won't see it. Hopeful that my grandkids may smell it, and believing my great grandkids will taste it. Um, wow. Like this is generational that will have to happen. And so, yeah, so it's giving yourself grace to realize that like you, you won't be able to fix the problem overall. Like no one person can, uh, it's, but how do we raise children that will raise children that will raise children that create a different world for them to live in? Wow. And I think that perspective was, it was humbling for me and, and like, oh, like this is work I wanted to commit myself to. Um, but then recognizing it's just like, man, God has called me to just do this part of the journey. Like, you know, the four by four mm -hmm. racing, like I'm gonna carry the baton and then eventually I'll pass it on to my children. Uh, and then hopefully they'll pass it on to their children and then your children will pass it on to their children. Uh, and, and like, that's the level of the work we're talking about. Because even when you look at, um, you know, somebody, uh, I was reading something, I think it was one of the, some president, maybe the YMCA, I don't recall his name, but he says like he was, he was, he was hurting and hopeful, but he said he was hurting because it felt like he says, when he looked at the protest, he says it felt like 1968 and he had been, he's so, so he's seen both. And so you're, you're talking about over 40 years, close to 50 years, a little over 50 years where it's been the same thing. So it's like, it's not going to be just, I fixed it and I did it, but no, it's, it's how are we discipling and forming reconcilers who can then continue the work and form and, and create new reconcilers who then their children will be reconcilers. And then may just maybe, like I said, three generations from now, there's a different world that, that they'll experience that, that I won't. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with that. Um, mm. but it's just that's really good. Oh gosh. That's so both like, I love your hope within that and mm -hmm. um, your realism within it is, if I'm honest, a little depressing, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I love the hope that gives the um, space to, to endure and to press in for the yeah. long haul. Yeah. You got to have hope. Like you, you have to have hope for something, 
which is which is I think the perspective actually gives me hope because it's it's and it's something my dad always taught me. And my like, I remember so my dad was a first generation college student, uh, really smart. He went to Yale and Duke. Like so he, my dad's crazy smart. And and I remember him saying like my great grandmother, which is his grandmother. The only job she was able to get was to mop floors. But I remember him saying that like, I remember her praying over me while she mopped floors that I won't experience the life that I know, but I'm praying that my grandchild will. And so it's mm. just this whole generational connection that this that this world can be changed um, by our children and our children's children and our children's children. Uh, and that's the perspective that I'm going to carry the baton as far as I can uh, and then pass it off. That's good. That's a really good word to leave us on here. Yeah. Um, Jared, thank you so much for being with us. I really thank appreciate you. you. I appreciate it. I'm grateful again to have you lead in a church that I love and care about. Grateful for you being here in Long Beach and mm-hmm. to be um, a, a significant voice and leader in our city for such a mm-hmm. time as this. So thank you. thanks for being here with me. Thank you. Love you, Park Res, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Grace and peace, friends.